But in many ways, this is this verse is used as a defense against, well, you can't tell me what to do because even Jesus said you shouldn't judge other people. Yep. Do not judge so that so that you may not be judged. For the judgment you give will be the judgment you get, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. Doesn't this happen in every single one of your arguments with somebody? Well, you do this and you do that. Well, yeah, but you do X, Y, Z, and this thing that's worse than the, I'm going to one-up you on the thing that you just said about me because this thing that's irritated me for six months about you, but I've never got the chance to say, I'm going to finally say it now because you're saying you're making such a big deal out of the fact that uh, whatever this small thing is comparatively to how much you annoy me in these other areas, we want to one-up it because we feel so condemned in the way that this person is talking to me. What Jesus is describing is simply the way things occur. Welcome to the Belfast Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Byler, here with Daniel. Finally back to a recording, what I've been posting for the past, gosh, four or five months. Yeah. Has all been things we recorded during the end of this past school year. So um, while I'm happy we had so many episodes banked up, um, it is good to be recording again. And so we're here talking about what chapter is this? Chapter 7 of the Divine Conspiracy. A community of prayerful love is what the chapter is called. But if you open up that chapter, it is going to be quite surprising to you the topic that Willard spends about half the chapter. So we're going to spend most of this episode discussing that subject and the subject he opens up the chapter with is condemnation and you may think why in the world would he start a chapter that is titled a community of prayerful love with the subject of condemnation and it has to do with the middle word of his title community there cannot be community in a place where there is condemnation and you cannot pray rightly and you cannot pray rightly for others if you are condemning so that is where he lands but let us let us investigate for some time here why it's so important that we understand Jesus' words on condemnation and what Willard has to say here about how it affects our prayer and our and our lives, our interpersonal relationships, and our relationship with God. So I would like to start, unless you have any other opening comments, or Daniel, with uh, what Willard says in the beginning of the chapter. Please, go right ahead. Okay. Let me, there we go. Let me adjust some things here. Let me share it so you all can see what I'm reading. This is at the very in the second paragraph in the in the cha- in the chapter, Willard says back again. Back to what we've been talking about since chapter five, and Willard keeps hammering home this idea that there's a reason for the lineage. There's a reason for the order of things in which they appear in the Sermon on the Mount. You cannot love your enemy if you are angry with your brother. 
you cannot let your yes be yes and your no be no if you think that you using words or using special phrases to enhance the commitment of your of the things that come out of your mouth is is a way to entice people to trust you right so jesus is making a point in the order in which he talks about these things and so it is again here as we'll read in just a minute from matthew chapter 7 so willard says this if we are still dominated by anger contempt and lusting still ruling our house with an iron lung and so forth the tender areas into which jesus now moves will simply become incomprehensible we must start at the point jesus himself chose the nature of true well-being or blessedness the beatitudes and follow his order through the setting aside of anger contempt and absorbing lust manipulation and paying back and on the forsaking of dependence upon human reputation and material wealth. Then we will be ready for whatever comes next. For as the master of knowledge, he here deals with personal and moral reality as it really is, and it really does have an order. We omit that order at our peril. So, to just confess to you and everyone listening. I am still finding it difficult to put away my anger and my contempt. So these, this chapter in and of itself was very convicting to me because there's ways in which contempt and community can get tied up in not only anger, but in lust and the desire for reputation and all of those other things. But I see, and it's, I guess it's just the case that it's true. I see that a lot of what comes from those other things is grounded in my, the easy access I have to my anger or my self-righteousness or my contempt towards other people or my desire to control, which is something we're going to talk about a lot. My desire to control. And it's not always overt. That's the thing that's sneaky about it, is it is sneaky. So anything you want to say there, Daniel, before we continue and read the passage from Matthew 7? Well, we have it in the in the show notes here, but it might go better elsewhere, but I'll just say it here because we, we placed it here. Um, one of the things that I think is good to think about when it comes to condemnation um, and the reason that Willard play arranges this chapter as he does he talks about condemnation and prayer and in the context of a community of prayerful love and so condemnation is really something that he sees as a cancer on community mm -hmm. and prayer and request as he phrases it are the healing agent for community yes and so this episode, we're going to talk about condemnation. Next, we're going to talk about prayer and requesting. Uh, but one of the things that I also want to just state up front is condemnation doesn't always have to be explicit. And we're going to define condemnation in a little bit, according to Willard, and um, get into the, the nitty gritty on that. But condemnation doesn't always have to be explicit. I think that's worth saying at the outset. Yes. Because 
one of the most common forms of condemnation that we encounter in communal settings is gossip. Yes. And gossip is one of the ways that we can condemn someone else without their presence, without their ability to defend themselves mm -hmm. in a way of knocking them down and building ourselves up. Yes. Artificially. And so gossip is a good example of condemnation, but it's not the only example. Most of the examples we're going to talk about are not actually gossip, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to state it here. Yes. Because you can think about that in the background of this entire thing, um, though we're going to kind of leave that here as we move forward. Um, yes. And I just want to say one other thing, maybe because I experienced this in a very acute way. <clears throat> Next time someone you work with, you go to school with, or in your family starts talking negatively about someone else. They're like, oh, did you hear what so-and-so did? Can you believe that this thing happened? Pay attention to the flavor of the thing they're saying and then see if that flavor corresponds to something you could title as condemning that person and see how closely they match because I found that they're pretty much the same thing. Well, and what's interesting on that, and I'll say this and then we can move on. Um, we all, if you grew up in the church, at least, we all know of that dynamic where the prayer request really becomes gossip. Right. It's a meme. And it, it, and it is a meme, but it's something that I've seen. But it's happen. true. That's why it's funny. It, it, it's true. And it's not it's that exact dynamic that Willard is talking about in this chapter. What can be the social cancer can also be the social cure. Yes. In, if instead yes. of gossip, we request. And so yes. as we're thinking about that, as we discuss these dynamics over the next two episodes, think about that example. What can be the toxic prayer request can actually be a request to God and other members of our community for the benefit of the other. Yes. We have a beautiful opportunity. Let us not squander it. And let us read Matthew 7. Okay. Matthew 7. Mm. Oh, okay. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For the judgment you give will be the judgment you get. Remember that phrase. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take that speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them underfoot and turn and maul you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be open for you. For everyone who receives, who asks, receives. And any everyone who searches, finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for bread, would give him a stone? Or if the child asks for a fish, would give him a snake? 
If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And everything do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. Matthew 7, 1 through 12. All right, Daniel, I want you to go ahead and read. I, I said when I read this, keep this in mind. I want you to reread the first two verses here in Matthew 7, and then I'm going to read a quote from Willard, and we'll talk about it for a couple minutes, how I think these verses have been so misused and misunderstood. Yeah, can you move your mouse real quick? Yes. Appreciate it. Okay. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For the judgment you give will be the judgment you get. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. Okay. And how we mostly heard that verse used in our contemporary into this american life how is those two sentences taken out of context and used in religious and secular settings how would how have you mostly heard that use? only god can judge me with the you know snap your fingers as formation that whole like yeah. nine yards yeah of like well god said you shouldn't judge so why are you telling me what to do why are you Mm-hmm. maybe rightly so why are you condemning me yeah why are you telling me what to do and maybe they aren't condemning but in many ways this is this verse is used as a defense against well you can't tell me what to do because even jesus said you shouldn't judge other people yep but i don't i don't think that that's jesus point at all so no. Let's see. Okay, so this is from page 244 on the Divine Conspiracy. And Willard says this. Back again, we started talking about anger, contempt, as it relates to condemnation here, the ability to not have a community of prayerful love. He says, anger is not as closely intertwined with condemnation as contempt. But in fact, there is a close association Watching anger in action, we see that it almost always leads to condemnation, partly no doubt, because condemnation is such a handy way of hurting people deeply. And anger desires to hurt. On the other hand, condemnation makes the road trip makes the road to anger a quick and easy trip. The one condemned is seen as deserving or suffering, and in any case is not worthy of protection and respect. The condemned in turn responds with anger to the pain of being condemned and around and around it goes. Okay. So what does Jesus say? Do not judge so that, so that you may not be judged for the judgment you give will be the judgment you get. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. Doesn't this happen in every single one of your arguments with somebody? Yeah. Well, you do this and you do that. 
well, yeah, but you do X, Y, Z and this thing that's worse than the, I'm going to one up you on the thing that you just said about me, because this thing that's irritated me for six months about you, but I've never got the chance to say, I'm going to finally say it now because you're saying you're making such a big deal out of the fact that, uh, whatever this small thing is comparatively to how much you annoy me in these other areas, we don't even just, not only do we just match that same energy and the judgment, but we want to one up it because we feel so condemned in the way that this person is talking to me. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying that you can't tell people they're wrong or that, you use this as a defense every time anybody says anything negative about you. What Jesus is describing is simply the way that things occur. Almost like I, he knew. Exactly. Almost like he was smart. So, so I want uh, I wanted to make that explicit because I think these two sentences are used, they are bastardized. Yeah. They are mutilated to mean something that they are not meant to mean. And I literally just now realized exactly what Jesus was saying. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. And we'll get into this later in the episode. So I'll come back to it. So I won't spend a ton of time on it here. But if you keep reading, you'll realize that Jesus is not saying that you can never correct someone. Yes, He's talking about this dynamic right here. He's talking about this dynamic of harsh condemnation that leads to anger and bitterness and broken and fractured relationships. So real quick, I moved a few things around, Luke. I'm going to read this the quote from page 240, okay. um, where Willard starts talking about what condemnation is and how it works. Um, so you don't, if, if are you pulling it up now? How does it start? Um, it starts, but what is it? okay got it got it okay but what is it exactly that we do when we condemn someone we condemn uh, when we condemn another we really communicate that he or she is in some deep and just possibly irredeemable way bad bad as a whole and to be rejected in our eyes the condemned is among the discards of human life he or she is not acceptable we sentence that person to exclusion surely we can learn to live well and happily without doing that so you can you can exit Um, one of the things that i think is super crucial to realize about this dynamic is, you know, when we read this quote from Willard, we think that's extreme, right? Oh, I don't, I don't do that. I don't make people feel that way. I don't use my words. I'm not dehumanizing and excluding. I'm not dehumanizing or excluding others. Um, You're excluding them from the conversation. You're excluding them from the conversation. They're not there. If you're gossiping, um, you're excluding them from having an opinion that is worth having or sharing. You're excluding them from being someone with value and worth that's worth paying attention to. Now, we often think, well, I'm condemning in order to correct. Right. 
I'm, I'm aiming this condemnation at making them better. But as you just pointed out, as Jesus pointed out in the opening words of our passage for today, that doesn't actually work because that just drives a wedge deeper between people. When you aim your condemnation, when your aim is to build someone up, but your method is condemnation, your method is not calibrated to produce the desired result. So either your desire is misaligned and you're just lying to yourself, or you need to rethink your method. Yeah. Because usually condemnation is about destroying them and making us feel good about ourselves. It's not about the other person and what's good for them. So at this point, I think it's time to think about what are what are some ways that we can um, what are some ways that we can aim at producing good things? Well, first, there's actually one thing that I want to read read from Willard. And sorry, Luke, I'm going to jump down to the counterattack principle. Yeah, quick, yeah, I was about I think to say it fits. we need to talk about that. So the the this is what. Willard doesn't use this phrase exactly, but he, he talks about how this kind of condemnation produces a counterattack. So <clears throat> I'm going to jump around. I'm only going to read one small phrase here. Um, the results of condemning and blaming is sure to be a counterattack in the very same terms. That's That's really what we're talking about here. And... All you have to really do is think about the way that you react when someone condemns you. Mm-hmm. You don't have to think about the way other people react when you condemn them. Think about the way that you internally or externally react when someone condemns you. Either, depending on your personality, you shrink back, you cower, you um, you feel broken and defeated inside. Or you lash back out and attack. So if that's the way that that's the way that I react, one of those two ways, if that's the way that I react, why would I think that that is a good way of leading someone else towards life and flourishing and godliness? I think that's a super important point to make. Secondly, this kind of counterattack principle, um, it's useful to recognize that this is the dynamic that's going on because you can also see that this produces, usually produces other kinds of negative behaviors in the person being condemned. Passive aggression, perfectionism, rejection of authority, all sorts of things that aren't healthy behaviors in them and in a relational dynamic. And so if you're going to, if you use condemnation as a way of trying to get someone to do something, even if it's aimed at their betterment, you're going to produce negative results because of this counterattack principle and the way that it spills over into other behaviors that it will naturally produce in them. So Luke, I don't know if you have anything to say on that before we get into the 
um, quote from Paul. No, let's talk about Galatians. Okay. So Galatians 6.1, I'm just going to read just that one verse. One of the things that's super important to realize about Paul is that he's he's less of a systematic theologian and more of a community builder. He's about building righteous community. And so his this oh, this verse here, we're taking it standalone, which I usually don't like to do, but it's a good snapshot of this dynamic that Paul is trying to deal with in community. He says, my brothers and sisters, if anyone is detected in a transgression, you who have received the spirit should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Take care that you yourselves are not tempted. And you can see the way that this is playing with that judge not lest you be judged dynamic. Right. Spirit of gentleness. Don't condemn. It'll produce a counterattack. Take care that you yourselves are not tempted either to the same. You could take this in two ways, either to the same wrong that this person is committing or to condemn them, to lash out to them, to attack them for their wrongness. Exactly. Their wrong way of being. Both are both are likely. Yes. Yep. So this in, is go ahead. I was no 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 you finish up because I'm gonna talk for a second. This is Paul's answer to yes. Jesus' problem. This this, this is, is well, this is Paul's answer to Jesus' answer to the problem Jesus is raising and the problem Paul is facing in the Galatian community. Um, and, and I think it's really, it's a fantastic parallel to make, and Willard makes it in his chapter, because we get to see Jesus outline the principle, and then we get to see the way Paul applies that principle to a concrete reality, mm-hmm. right? So Willard makes several points in his section of the chapter called Who Can Correct Others? And I'm just going to run through them real briefly, Luke. You don't have to pull up a page or anything. Um, His first step in correcting, in in this process of correcting someone, because Willard and Jesus both are very insistent that this judge not lest you be judged does not mean you cannot correct, right? It's, It's not about not being able to issue correction, Right. First, take the log out of your own eye so then you can see clearly to take the log out of your neighbors. There is a a dynamic of correction at play here. But it's not any kind of correction, specifically that that uses condemnation. So he says that we don't undertake to correct unless we are absolutely sure of sin. It's not a, eh, I'm, I think they're doing wrong. It's no, we're, we know this is not correct. That, this, that has to be, that's the first standard. This is where, this is an area of my life. I am not as, oh, that's not what I wanted to do. This is an area of my life where I'm not as practiced as I once was. This is why confession is a pillar mm-hmm. of tr- tradition mm-hmm. because that way you are 
telling somebody what you know you did wrong. That way, there is no guess about the speck in your eye. There is no condemnation. There is no gossip, hopefully. There is no, well, they said this thing, so I'm assuming that they what they really mean is this, this thing, this is what's going on here. No. They told me. We talked about it. And we move on from there. Yep. But to to we alleviate this correct unless we are absolutely sure. One of the ways we can be absolutely sure is if someone confesses. Yep. So I did I walked through the practice of confession weekly for almost a year. We we had some hit or miss patches because of my school schedule mainly. Um for the, the last year of my MDiv program. And uh, th this close friend of mine, he and I met once a week for confession over sandwiches in the park. And it was one of the best things I think I've ever done. And I really need to start doing it again with someone else because we've moved. And um, But this very close friend of mine, he and I met and it was it was amazing because it trained us to think about throughout the week, to think about the ways that we were sinning be conscious of them and actively try to avoid them it's, it's a liturgical practice that rewrites the way you think about living life uh, but it also means that you have someone in your life to say hey like you need correction there and it fulfills this second step of willard's too not just anyone is to correct others Correction is reserved for those who live and work in divine power, not their own. He and I had invited each other into that space specifically because we recognized in the other a divine appointment, the spirit of God on this person in a way that made them wise and loving in their ability to correct and guide the other in their life. Mm -hmm. And, and that's really, I think it's, it's so funny to realize that Willard's steps, I was living them out in this practice without even realizing it because that's just one in two checked off the list right there. And it also hits at his third point. It's not about correcting the wrongness. It's about restoring them to rightness and righteousness. Mm -hmm. This is what when penance we, is. Yes. When, we, when he and I met over sandwiches in the park to confess, it was always aimed at, okay, now how can you do better next time? How can I help you do better next time? Right. And, and this is... I mean, you can dog it as much as you might like, but this is what the Catholic tradition of penance is all about. It's not about, hey, don't think about that thing you did. Maybe maybe the answer is focusing on something else more. Maybe you should pray. Maybe you need to pray this many times. Maybe you need to do this thing. Maybe this thing in your heart requires this sort of action. Not to not think about the thing, but to do something different. Yeah. So, so then, 
Go ahead. Willard's last point, um, and that this is kind of the point that holds all of the others together, I think, is the the way that humility is essential to this process. Knowing that you could do the same thing and likely have and are, maybe without even realizing it, is crucial. There's no self-righteousness or superiority in this. And this is why the practice of confession that I engaged in was so good, because one week it was his turn to confess, and the next it was my turn to confess. And so we both knew each other's confessions. And so humility was a natural part of the game. You just, you had to be. And so whenever you're in a dynamic of correction, or correction is legitimately needed, it's nice to work down these four steps in order to make sure that your heart is attuned properly, the log is out of your eye, in order to be able to be a, a good presence in the situation. Yes, and then, and I think the last thing we've got time for here is um, one of the final themes we wanted to hit in terms of condemnation and how it inhibits community. You were just talking about ways in which it builds up a community. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing, we'll just run with your your example here. The thing that's so beautiful about that kind of relationship and other relationships like that that I've had is that I never walked into meeting with those people thinking that they were going, whatever I said, thinking that they were going to try to control me. There was no manipulation going on here about mm -hmm. what, what they said or what you said. And there was no attack or counterattack going on here. Well, you did this last week and I did this this week, but you, I'm better than you because you yeah. I d didn't do this and you did that and see how much holier I am because I still don't struggle with that thing. And so the thing to switch the gears a little bit back to some of the negative ways that condemnation inhibits our communities and thing that I have found mm -hmm. most, most profound in my own life is that in many ways, my subtle condemnation, my gossip of other people, my secret thoughts that I have about things that I dislike about interactions I have with strangers and with friends is that, well, they didn't do act or say things that I would have liked them to say or do, or the way that they reacted was not the way I would have liked them to treat me at that moment or how I would have reacted to them. If I would have been a good Christian person at the time, you know, that's not how they should have done it. I would have done it this way. And it is a phrase I like is um, molding people in my own image. Yep. It is about controlling what they do. And um, the final point that I'll make about this whole subject and the thing that I see as has been damaging in in my relationships is that a friend of mine put it very well, Jesus' principle of judge not lest you be judged for the measure which you judged, you will be judged. There's another way to think about that, which is when I have wounds about something, 
say my desire to be liked and I get rejected, I'm wounded, or my desire for someone to take what I say seriously or to appreciate my wisdom or my thoughtfulness about a certain thing or my sacrifice to go and do something for them. And that comes as unappreciated or it's my insight on something is not well-received or whatever it might be, I get wounded. Well, trouble comes when my wound in a relationship hits somebody else's wound. And then our two wounds get stabbed. And then probably starts the hurting, the condemnation, the counterattacks because our wounds have both been hurt. And this model that we've seen outlined here prevents those kinds of things from happening because we put away anger. We put away contempt. We've put away the need for reputation. We put away our lust. We've put away these things so that we can step into a right relationship where we can confess. Yeah. So I'll say this real quick. Oftentimes I think we try and condemn people to compel them towards good things, Mm -hmm. but this is exactly what Jesus says with the pearls before swine. When we throw valuable good things in front of people who aren't ready for them, they turn on us and they attack us because we use condemnation. 